everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Joan Hess about The Painted Queen, the novel that she finished for her friend Elizabeth Peters after Peters died in 2013. Barbara Mertz, who published under two pen names, Barbara Michaels and Elizabeth Peters, as well as nonfiction under her own name, earned a doctorate in Egyptology and published two nonfiction books on the subject before she turned to writing fiction. Her series featuring Amelia Peabody and her Egyptologist husband, Radcliffe Emerson, has an enormous fan base to which I am proud to belong. When I began this podcast, Peters was high on my list of authors I wanted to interview. But by the time I worked up the nerve to approach her, she was already gone. So I was absolutely delighted to learn that her friend Joan Hess had completed the last of the Peabody novels, The Painted Queen. I was even more delighted when Joan agreed to speak with me. We will go a little bit into the background of Peabody, Emerson, and their ever-expanding family, a history that spans 20 novels and a non-fiction book, Amelia Peabody's Egypt, during the interview. For now, to give you the flavor of the series, as always, I will read the opening. The I is Amelia Peabody. From the harbor, the port of Alexandria is an attractive sight, its white-walled houses and red-tiled roofs framed by azure sky and sea. Since I had been there many times, I knew that the walls were disfigured by dried mud and rude graffiti and that the streets were inches deep in evil-smelling debris. I never arrived in Alexandria without wishing to leave it as soon as possible. However, our welcome was warm enough to cheer the saddest heart. Our arrival had been heralded by the mysterious network of communication that operates in countries such as Egypt, and cries of greeting arose as our ship approached the dock. "'Assalamu alaykum, O father of curses!' Mahaba Yasit Hakim. Egyptians enjoy inventing sobriquet, and that of Emerson, I believe, requires no elucidation. As I have often said, and never tire of saying, my husband is the greatest Egyptologist of the 19th century, of the Christian era, and although the present century is still in its infancy, I do not doubt that he will dominate it as well. His physical endowments are no less remarkable than his intellectual skills. As he stood beside me at the rail, his thick black hair was disheveled by the breeze, and his sapphirine orbs shone with anticipation, for we were returning to a particularly intriguing excavation that certain events of a particular nature had prevented us from finishing the previous season. And now, please join me in welcoming Joan Hess. Hi, Joan. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Well, thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to have a conversation. I'm really looking forward to this. So I think before I talk about The Painted Queen, uh, we should be clear that you are not just the woman who finished Elizabeth Peters' books, uh, or this last book, rather. Uh, You've published at least 35 contemporary mysteries of your own in the Claire Malloy series and the Arlie Hanks series. So tell us a bit about your background, uh, how you came to write these mysteries, and about the series. Well, in college, I majored in art, which um, I wasn't very good. So I went ahead and got a master's degree in early childhood education and was teaching art in a preschool, very cleverly. A friend of mine came into town and said, we have to write romance novels. I said, oh, indeed, having never read one. But this was back in the early 80s, and the market was really hot, and they were accepting books over the transom. Harlequin. So I gave it a shot, went through three agents, had one very minor sale, was rejected continually for too much plot, not enough romance. And 
which drove me crazy. Of course, I refused to read romance novels, so I wasn't really sure what they were talking about. But I finally got discouraged and called my agent of the time and said, I'm going to grad school. This is what adults do in a moment of crisis. Get another degree. So she said, wait, wait. Why don't you write a mystery? I said, I can't possibly write a mystery. Those are real books as opposed to romances. <laughs> Sorry, romance fans. But I thought, okay, I will give my... At this point, it was mid-year. I had a son in half-day preschool. I thought, okay, I will give it give it one more semester, and then I'll go to grad school if I haven't sold anything. So I decided to write a mystery, and which was entitled Strangled Prose. And, of course, the very first victim was a successful romance writer, of course. Of course. And her Azalea Twilight and her little dog, Twilliam. And I really kind of wanted to kill the dog, too, but they wouldn't let me. <laughs> People are like that about dogs. <laughs> I read that yeah. one. I enjoyed it very much, I, have, I must say. And then I wrote another one, went to New York, and my editor... And I was so intimidated when I met my editor, but turned out he was wearing you know, a cowboy shirt, and we had a three-martini lunch. Those were the days, party. huh? <laughs> <laughs> so he suggested I, because I was being so prolific, partly because they weren't paying me very much, that I start another series. So that's where the, what I call the Maggoty series, the, the Arlie Hanks books that are all set in the little town of Maggoty. And that was kind of fun, too, and it's fun to switch back and forth because the Clares are fairly civilized and the Maggotys are wander into R-rated. Ah, so, so that's the main sir. difference. Uh-huh. Pardon? Oh, so that's the main difference. I was wondering. Well, the number of syllables in each word, Maggoty, it's usually one-word syllables, Claire, I get to use polysyllabic words and you know, college town ambience. Mm-hmm. But I am getting ready to start. Well, I'm supposed to talk about that now. The next Maggoty, because poor Arlie has been pregnant for about four years. Ah, <laughs> that gets awkward, yes. <laughs> well, I, I wrote a couple of Claire's after I finished that, ma- the whichever Maggoty that was. Uh, I wrote a couple of Claire's because they pay me more. Then I got involved with the Painted Queen, and that that really took three years for various reasons. Poor Arlie has been suffering ever since. I think I need to let her have that baby. <laughs> I think so, right? <laughs> so when did you first encounter Elizabeth Peters? How did you become friends? Oh, that was a funny scene. I was my very first mystery convention which is called BoucherCon, that's held annually in various cities, I saw Barbara standing talking to Charlotte McLeod, who was also one of my very favorite authors. And I sucked it up and went over and complimented Charlotte and then said to Barbara, and I just love those steamy tent scenes. (laughs) That's a great opening line. (laughs) But she said, uh, you know, everybody always says, isn't Ramsey's cute? But I was the first person that uh, she can 
those tense scenes where she said not one thing that was the least bit unladylike. I could still see see the steam coming out of the tent. I know, so, those scenes are amazing. I mean, she you're right, she doesn't say anything that her grandmother couldn't uh, read without blushing, and yet it's very obvious that, that uh, Peabody and Emerson are passionately attracted to each other. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. So she was so, struck by that because you had taken an approach differently. And I should, we should mention that Barbara is uh, Elizabeth Peters' real name. Elizabeth yeah. Peters is one of her two pen names. Right. Yeah, Elizabeth and her daughter is named Elizabeth. And Peter because Peter's because her son is named Peter. Oh, that's no. where it comes from. Okay. <laughs> yeah, not too tricky. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we we started chatting and then I uh, just got to where we were chatting on the phone and she decided that we had to have a convention. Bouchercon was tending and Mystery Writers of America conventions tended to focus on male thrillers, <clears throat> so she decided to start a new convention called Malice Domestic, which are traditional mysteries, not not necessarily cozy, but traditional. Mm-hmm. Are they and, written by uh, women, or are they just about more of more a feminine perspective? Or? They're, I think most of the writers are women. There are plenty of guys, but none of the dark alleys and psychotic killers and gore and violence. Mm-hmm. When I when I kill somebody, I do it. I do it in the other room. Yeah, these What's are my kind of it? mysteries, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like, never go into any kind of. Well, sometimes I absolutely do, but try not to do anything that is violent mm-hmm. or bloody. So anyway, Barbara. And Charlotte decided we had to have that convention, so that's still going on. That's 20-something years, and it's held in the Washington, D.C. area. The last time, I think, in Bethesda. Mm-hmm. But it's been in Silver Springs. And when I came into writing mysteries in the mid-'80s, there were a whole bunch of other women, American women, and we all bonded. So, and are still friends today, like, Margaret Marin and Dorothy Cannell and Sharon Newman and Susan Rogers Cooper and Nancy Card all all of us started about the same time and went to the same conventions and leaned on each other. So that's that was great. really great. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, so Elizabeth Peters also had several series um, as well as a collection of standalone, standalone novels, um, some of which intersected with the series in unpredictable ways. Um, my own personal favorite was the Vicky Bliss novels because uh, it just seems innately hilarious for an art historian to be involved with an art uh, forger, <laughs> no matter how charming and uh, sophisticated he is. Uh, but what about you? Were you always a Peabody and Emerson fan? I was always the Peabody Emerson. I liked the Vicky Blitz. Bliss. I do not, the, the slightly paranormal don't do anything for me. No, me neither, I'm afraid. But they do for a lot of other people, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. I don't object to their existence. I just prefer to read. Something that strikes me is a little bit more plausible. So, and what was it like to be approached to complete this last manuscript of your friends? Oh, Barbara died not, not exactly unexpectedly. 
she had been dealing with some real serious cancer stuff. And so I was informed and immediately made arrangements to fly out to Maryland for the funeral. Her daughter Beth was there, Elizabeth, and her agent, who is also my agent, Dominic Abel, and Peter at some point showed up. But I remember sitting around the kitchen table in, as we called it, Mertz Manor, which was, I think, pre-revolutionary, the house, mm-hmm. with the stone floor and the great big hearth, sitting at the wooden table, and Dominic and Beth are looking at each other, and I knew I was in trouble. Uh-oh. <laughs> and finally, Dominic said, would I consider finishing the book? And I said, no, hell no. Then I was told, oh, but she's got so much of it already done, and she's got lots of notes. And I kept saying no, and they kept feeding me carrot cake and vodka, two of my weaknesses, my two main weaknesses, actually, and trying to convince me that I could do it. And I did realize I was the most likely candidate to capture Barbara's voice, the sardonic, it's maybe the nice word for sarcastic and sometimes caustic, but also compassionate. And I finally agreed. Then we had, a few months later, boot camp back at the manor with Beth and Salima Ikram, who is a professor of Egyptology in Cairo, except right now she's at Yale, teaching at Yale for the semester anyway. The three of us spent the weekend going over everything Barbara had written and her scribbles, which were mostly illegible. She had done about a third of the book and set up all kinds of situations. She and, she and I had talked about it on the phone some. At one point she said, without going too much into spoilers, I don't see how I can you know, get through to the end of the book with only three assassins. Mm-hmm. And I said, but why do you only have to have three? Ah. I was real sorry about that later. <laughs> but still, I mean, a third of the book is more than nothing, but it still leaves a lot of work for you to do. Yeah, and most of the notes were illegible, and a lot of the scenes were sort of jumbled around. I had to move things. I tried to keep absolutely most everything that Barbara wrote to weasel it in, to sometimes having to move it. But it still was just about a third of it. And sometimes it just got me into more trouble. So I didn't she think, didn't oh, explain where she was going with. She wouldn't explain where she was going with the scene. She would just throw it in there and going. Hmm. I wonder what happens now. Very much the sen- sensation of painting myself into the corner. Uh huh. Daily. Yeah, in some ca- cases, I suppose. I mean, it, it's. Because of the voice, which is so important, a part of her novels, I suppose there's, it's useful to have uh, parts of it, scenes written out. But in other ways, it makes it uh, more difficult for you because you have to work around those things which have already been created rather than making up your own plot points based on the, the setup in the beginning. Yes, I spent a lot of time. Salima and I learned how to Skype. And we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what would be the logical conclusion of this scene or the underlying problem in the entire book of what's going on with this 
with this Egyptologist, which I can't talk about, because it would ruin the plot. But yeah, we won't go into that part of it. He's behaving very oddly, and that had to be discussed, and what to do with the, the painted queen herself. So I hadn't realized this when I sent you the questions, but there's a real irony to this, because the last one of the Jacqueline Kirby novels, which I think is called Naked Once More, mm-hmm. actually involves this plot element in which uh, Jacqueline is deputized to finish the um, the book of someone, in this case, the author has disappeared and nobody knows what's happened to her. And she's a highly successful author and, you know, Jacqueline is left with a 30-page outline and, and instructions. <laughs> <laughs> and so she spends most of her time trying to figure out what happened to the person rather than actually completing the book, which is more or less impossible. Um, but it... It is, it's, it's a real tragedy that we lost her, so don't misunderstand me in that respect. Um, I was a great fan of, of Barbara Mertz, Elizabeth mm-hmm. Beers, um, and I was really sorry uh, to hear, because being on the outside, I didn't know that she was ill. Um, but yeah. it is, it's, it's odd. You know, it's just one of those quirky little things that the universe throws out that she, that she wrote this novel, and now here you are in the position of, of doing exactly that. Mm-hmm. So you did travel to Egypt at one time, is that correct? Yes, Barbara invited me, and we flew to London, Zip Cairo, Zip Luxor, I think. Boy, it's been a while, like 15 years ago. And uh, Dennis Forbes, who's a, the editor of Kemet, which is an Egyptology magazine, came great friend of Barbara's, and Joel Cole, who's a neophyte like me. And we stayed in Luxor at the Winter Palace, which I played fast and loose with in my book. Went to all the sites. The reason we went at that particular time was that Barbara had partially funded an excavation in the Valley of the Kings called KV-63. And the archaeologist whose first name is Otto, and I don't remember his last name, thought he was going to open the tomb right when we were there. So we went out to the Valley of the Kings, and they had taped off the site with yellow tape, and we got to go behind the tape, and they had made a little shade thing with canvas and poles and served us tea, and it was very, very cool. (laughs) And we... No, it does sound very cool. It's, it's, I mean, there are lots of scenes like that in uh, in the Peabody and Emerson novels as they they go about their business digging and so on. So did he actually open the tomb while you were there? Pardon? I didn't... Oh, so did he actually open the tomb while you were there? Well, no. They couldn't quite get to it. We, I mean, we just sat there. They, you know, we just sat and watched as they carried up the bags of rubble and things. They finally opened it a couple of weeks later and did not find, you know, King Tut's first cousin or anything. They found some sarcophagi with wheat and seeds and things in it, which was very interesting to some of the academics, but no mummies or anything. Mm -hmm. None of the cool stuff with the gold and the... Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the earlier books in the series, because, in fact, I mean, that's actually quite typical of the, the Peabody Emerson novels. There is one in which they have this huge find, and then 
there's the last one involves the uh, Tutankhamun find. Um, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but whatever. Um, but most of them, you know, they, they do, in fact, move an enormous amount of rubble from place to place, <laughs> including in the Painted Queen, although there is this... this um, um, this little quirk in there that we'll get to without, you know, giving too much away. Um, but tell us a little bit about your view of Amelia Peabody, whom we meet first in Crocodile on the Sandbank, which is the initial book where she is a Victorian spinster of independent means and spirit. This is true. And I discovered, I had already read a whole lot of the Amelia books when I met Barbara, but I discovered that Barbara really was Amelia. Oh, really? Oh, do tell. Uh, the same voice, the same attitude, the same women can do anything, damn it, free spirit, giddiness, humor, I mean, except for the lacking of the English accent, which in the books I didn't hear. When I listen to Barbara Rosenblatt read the books, I hear the British accent, but when I read the books, I don't hear Amelia in a British accent. I, I hear Barbara. Mm-hmm. So and she does all kinds of things, Amelia. She has this special costume that she wears for the dig, which allows her to wear the, their pants, basically, but their Victorian the, style bloomers and and, and the utility belt. Mm-hmm. And her parasols, her steel-tipped parasols. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and she had one. Did she really? Yes, she did. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could slide out the blade. I think she got it through customs. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine at a certain point it would be difficult. Uh, well, except, of course, you know, it looks like an umbrella. Mm-hmm. It just, one button put, poofs the sides up and the other button sticks out the weapon. She was very proud of it. So uh, Amelia's quest brings her into contact with Radcliffe Emerson right there in that first book uh, at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, if I call correctly they they meet for the first time and the fun begins so amelia is barbara and i would imagine that must make it very difficult to write under these circumstances but what what is your view of emerson does he have a real life counterpart as well not so much to me i haven't met any men that i find that intelligent and i wouldn't tolerate that arrogance i mean would you no. no, I love reading about him, but he's definitely the guy you want to keep in a book. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I have to, I had to keep reminding myself, you know, how much Amelia adored him and saw through his foibles and teased him and manipulated him. Yes, that's a lot of her charm, actually. Not just that, but she... Um, she sees some things uh, about herself and other people, and then there are other things that she absolutely does not see, um, including in her son, which is when I, I would have been one of those people who, I wouldn't have said Ramses was cute. I mean, I think cute is exactly the wrong word for Ramses. I mean, he's precocious and he's... Precocious is a better word, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> and he's daring. And I mean, he's, he's a lot of fun, especially when he's small. Um, Mm-hmm. But he's also very much like Amelia, don't you think, in, in his personality? I mean, there are some hilarious scenes early in the books where he is talking in these, you know, multisyllabic words, even though he's only four or five years old, and she tells him not to be so verbose, but she does it in a way that is incredibly verbose herself. 
Mm-hmm. Well, he has some of his father in him, too. Mm-hmm. And I think tries to disguise his mother's influence and sound more like the father of demons. Oh, that's an interesting insight. Now, I hadn't thought of that, but I think you're right about that. Uh, I mean, it makes sense that a boy would try to identify with his father. Um, but I'm always, I, I mean, I've always been struck by the resemblance between him and his mother. But yes, I could imagine that Ramses himself wouldn't like that very much and would try to, to push himself in the other direction. Yes, but he, he is obviously tender-hearted. He's exceedingly upset, upset if he causes somebody physical harm. Mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't really like to kill people. No, no. And when he's young, he has this wonderful relationship with his cat, uh, Bastet, who goes with him everywhere. Um, and they make a great pair as they're digging into tombs and causing them his parents, you know, all kinds of anxiety and stuff like that. Well, I have to admit, there's not a cat in the Painted Queen. No, that's true. But, you know, uh, Elizabeth Peters tried to introduce many cats after Bastet, and mm-hmm. most of them were not really successful. I know there was one that I laughed about for some time because it started off as a scrawny uh Stray, and at some point she had the line in there about, uh, I've forgotten the name of the cat, was approximately the size and shape of a melon. And I thought that was such a great image. <laughs> but, but, uh, but the rest of them, you know, there was Horace and a bunch of others, and they never really yeah. quite had the, uh, the appeal of Bastet, who lived to be extraordinarily old, I think, because probably because the author didn't want to kill her off, poor thing. No, well, you can't kill a cat. Ooh. <laughs> so, not, so, a, not in this section. Right. Kill so all you, the people you want, but not cats. Right. So do you find, I mean, did you find all of these characters equally easy to write, or did one of them give you more trouble than the others? Amelia was easy. I had to work a lot with, and actually, Emerson, but how to handle the relationship with Nefret and Ramses was kind of tricky. Somebody wrote me a letter of complaint saying I did not resolve the issues between them in The Painted Queen. Well, I couldn't because it is set between two other books. Right. No, I mean, I, that would have been completely inappropriate. It's resolved several books late. I mean, several books well, earlier, a, but later in time, right. Yeah, some things I just couldn't touch. Barbara called these the Lost Years, because she didn't want to do World War One, and we're getting oh. really close to it. Mm-hmm. So she was going back and filling in gaps of mm-hmm. years that she hadn't written about. So that's what I painted Queen, 1912. Well, I think there was also a problem with age, right? I mean, I, re- I remember reading somewhere that she'd said that if she'd realized how long the books were going to go on, she would have made Emerson and Peabody younger. I mean, by the time you get to 1923, I think... They're in their late 60s and 70s, and so it gets hard to send them dashing up mountains and down into tombs. Right. Right, and they have grandchildren. So tell us a little bit about Nefret. I know who she is, but the listeners may not know. Well, she was discovered in, ooh, wow, The Last Camel Died at Noon. Yes, which is a wonderful book. It's, it's Ryder Haggard to the max, that one. 
I hope you noticed I snuck that into the Painted Queen. Yes, um, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and she was the daughter of a British aristocrat. Oh, and I can't remember the story about he had fled with her to this oasis, and she ended up growing up there being considered a goddess. But the Emersons took her back to England with them and didn't technically adopted her, but emotionally adopted her. I mean, they actually have quite a large family by the end of the series. They only have one child of their own, who is Ramses, but there's David, who is Ramses' friend, and I think the grandson of, of uh, Abdullah, who was the leader of their expedition. Yes. Um, oh, David, yeah, David's the grandson. I, Salim is the son. their new reeds. Right. Um, and then there's Nefret, and then there's a little girl who... Um, I don't want to oh, say yeah. exactly what her relationship is because that's the plot of another book, but a little girl named Senia. Yes, yes. I'm glad you remembered that name because I did not. I was thinking desperately. <laughs> well, there are a lot of them, though. I mean, it's so. And then, of course, there's. Um, um, now I'm forgetting the name. Uh, starts with an E. Uh, who is married to Walter? E- Evelyn. Evelyn, yes, of course. Um, and their children, who are also. Uh, um, part of this sort of extended family of Egyptologists because Evelyn is a very gifted painter. And so whenever she's not pregnant, which is most of the time, they <laughs> haul her out to Egypt with them to uh, take um, rubbings and paintings of the tombs. So let's get to your book now. Um, it begins as Peabody and Emerson are arriving in Alexandria. And it's yeah. 1912, as you mentioned, uh, so it is 11 years before the end of the series, and I think a couple of years after the last one, which is set in Jerusalem, uh, but the, the last one actually written. So um, they are staying at Shepherd's, their favorite hotel, and within five pages, Amelia encounters a dead body. So since oh, this yeah. is so early in the book, uh, do fill us in on what happens, because even for Amelia, this is a bit of a record. That is a record indeed, and that was all Barbara's doing. And before she had even written that scene, we had a big talk about monocles because she wanted the guy to be wearing a monocle. And I said, this is on the phone, I said, okay. She said, but why would he wear a monocle? I don't know. (laughs) Well, how do you wear a monocle? I don't know. So she and her assistant, of course, ordered monocles tried to send one to me I refused but it just really was this weird thing <coughs> excuse me so we we stuck with monocles and that Judas the victim was well I don't know what we can say and not say you tell me um well, I was yes. thinking more of the details. Then Amelia goes, she's just arrived off the train, she goes to take a bath, and all of a sudden this guy bursts in, right? And yeah, he bursts in, falls over dead, says murder. Says murder, then falls over dead. That would make more sense. <laughs> this is the kind of thing editors are always messing with us about. <laughs> no, and first he just... says murder, then he falls over dead. <laughs> Right, right. Frank writers do that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was killed by the window. Yes, <laughs> the homicidal window. <laughs> oh, 
on, don't get me started on dangling participles. There's always a few, right? So let's so that, just say that this first body turns out to be one of several potential assassins. As you said, it was more than three. Um, oh, yeah. And they are all bent on reading the world of Amelia and Ramses, especially Ramses. Um, yeah. Whom they... For reason, reasons are become fairly obvious, I think. Yes, I think so. Uh, so we won't go into detail about the individuals. Um, I don't know... I mean, it's it's pretty clear early on in the book that this is related to Nefret um, and a brief relationship that she had. I don't know if... Do you want to go into more detail than that, or shall we just move on to the next... I think that can just stay there, because that gets explained. How'd you like Miss Smith? Oh, I name? loved Miss Smith. <laughs> She's a, she so was... she had some mm-hmm. ridiculous name, though. What was her name? Oh, Lord. Oh, the first one, it's like, it's not Euterpe or something, but it's something like that. Um, yeah. I have the book here. I can find it. Um, but probably not thought, while we're still on the phone. But yes, she, she has a, uh, an absurd first name, and then her last name is Smith. And she yeah. is also a, not just a romance novelist, but she writes things that the literary equivalent of body strippers and the, the chic and things like that. The chic. Mm-hmm. The chic, yeah. Because there are such books out there. Oh, absolutely, <coughs> yes. And especially in 1912, they were very popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I yeah, I'm not going to find it, so we'll just move on. I, can, I keep seeing Miss Smith here, Miss Smith there. Um, but yes, yeah, so <laughs> she was wonderful, yes. And she's involved, she becomes instantly smitten with a missionary whose last name is Dullard, which is her <laughs> That was Barbara's doing. <laughs> that was Barbara's name. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was great. Yeah, no, um, that's perfect. So, so they must have been fun to write. Yeah, Miss Smith was my doing. Dullard was Barbara's doing. Oh, you invented Miss Smith. Oh, that's great. Well, tell us how you came up with her. Well, I don't know. We just needed some more action. And in Mr. Dumb, you either introduce a new character or you kill somebody. And I didn't have anybody at that point to kill, so... Let's throw in something else to make the plot more interesting. I meant more how you came up with her character. Oh, bear in mind I tried to write romances, and I killed a romance writer in my first book. So I had a pretty pretty strong vision of romance writers. Even went to a couple of conventions. Well, you and Elizabeth Peters both. One of my favorite novels of hers was called Die for Love, and that was set at a romance writer's convention. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know that one. I wrote a conventional murder, which we had a little mystery convention, and I did not kill a cat. <laughs> that. That's good. We're, we're, that's right out. We're, we're against killing cats, I, I promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Okay, so she was just like an extreme of, of the romance writers that you had known. Yeah, mm-hmm. thought, I'd, thought I'd make her just highly amusing. I had to worry about her outfit and the fact that she was traveling with trunks of clothing. Yes, in and Egypt. Still, mm-hmm. Yeah, and taking up residence in a, in a mud hut. Well, she has to do research. Yeah. That was her excuse, right? Doesn't much like it. 
Well, who would, really? Yeah, I got on a camel once. What was that like? Oh, Lord. Um, I had gone out to the pyramids in Giza with uh, a friend on this trip that uh, Barbara took me on. He and I went out in a carriage to the pyramids, and I'm sitting in the carriage, and Chuck gets off, and of course we stopped by the camel, Muhammad the camel guy, for a photo op. So Chuck gives the guy's camera and gets on the camel and does his thing and says, your turn, and I said, I'm not getting out of the carriage. I don't like this. <coughs> and he said, oh, come on, just stand behind it and I'll take your picture. So I said, okay, and went and stood behind the camel, and Mohammed, the camel driver, grabbed me by the waist, plunked me on the saddle. When the camel goes up, it goes up 45 degrees one way, abruptly, and then it goes up 45 degrees the other way. Wow. Abruptly. Oh, yeah. So there's the photograph uh, of me on the camel. My agent said, the camel looks really pissed, and so do you. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen that photograph. Yes, I'm afraid that's true. (laughs) But now I understand, and I think camels always do, don't they? I mean, that's my impression of them in in any way. Yeah, that's the way they do it, but I, I I, I was not expecting it. And it happened so fast. And it's very abrupt. I mean, there's nothing subtle about this. Now, that part I actually didn't know. I meant when when you see them in pictures, they almost always look pissed. Yeah. Well, they're nasty, and they spit, and they bite, mm-hmm. and they stink. So that's why I let Miss Smith ride a camel. So did you get to Amarna on this trip? Um, because that's where this particular novel, a large part of it, takes place. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Did you get to Amarna on this trip that you took? Uh, no, I didn't. Mm-hmm. I had maps and consulted Salima a lot about it. Mm-hmm. But we were basically in luxury. We went to Lake Nasser on a cruise and then did some things around Cairo. Well, that's a lot in itself, I would think. Yeah, it was about two weeks. Mm-hmm. But there's an awful lot of stuff to see. Oh, I'm sure, yes. And you were waiting for the tomb as well, so. Yeah, so it was pretty amazing. And then at the end of each day, we could sit on the balcony with our friends and watch the sunset over the Nile with appropriate libations. So that was was pretty neat. Mm Mm-hmm. And listen to carriages along with cars. Uh Uh-huh. So, um, you had a lot to to master to make this book. I mean, you had Salima, uh, Salima to help you with the archaeology part, and you had Barbara's notes. But you, did you also did you have enough information about what Egypt was like in 1912? Where, where did you find out about that part of it? Oh, I googled hourly. I'm sure, looking up stuff, trying to figure things out. Would they have motor cars? Would they have transistor radios? Where was the German embassy? 
who was the German ambassador, which I never could find out. whole lot of stuff like that, telephones, tele- telegraphs. So Salima was really, really helpful, and it kind of just made me crazy. And I also had to deal with not only Arabic, but a little bit of French and German. So that was that complicated things. Mm-hmm. And how did you find out? I mean, did you have someone helping you with the language? Uh, Salima helped with the Arabic and corrected me. <clears throat> and told me, oh, you know, names and what would we call this and what would we do with that. And the German, I hope the copy editor got it right. And the French just used Google Translator. Well, the French was definitely right because I, I notice yeah. if I don't see it. The German, I don't, um, German is not one of my languages, so I can't say, but I assume that they did get it right. And that's their job, right? Yeah, and I studied French, mm-hmm. so that one was easier than Arabic, which, huh? <laughs> yes, <laughs> for lots of reasons, I would imagine. Um. <laughs> but Salima was quite wonderful, and other people looked at it, too. So, um, since you don't want to talk about the archaeologist, um, let, uh, let me just ask you to tell us a little bit about the Painted Queen, what, what the Painted Queen actually is, because this picture is on the book cover, so it's not exactly a secret. Okay, this is the bust of Queen Nefertiti, which was uncovered in Armana in 1912 by a German archaeologist named Bouchard. I had to, in my book, send him away and let someone else get involved because I did not want to offend his descendants. So I thought I just, he went, he left for a personal emergency, and when he came back, then it worked out again. The painted queen, the bust, was somehow removed from Egypt, possibly just packed in a case and not mentioned to customs. It went to the Berlin Museum in Berlin. Then it went to the to the home of the person who paid for the expedition, whose name escapes me. In my book, I called him Ridgemont, but he had it for a while. Supposedly, Hitler had it for a while. And there is the question of is it the the original? Mm-hmm. Which I sort of found that amusing at, the, amusing at the end of my book. Yes, which, I mean, it's not an uncommon situation in uh, Egyptian antiquities or Greek antiquities or most of the Middle East, actually. I mean, they, a lot of these places were discovered by European archaeologists who at the time didn't hesitate to take stuff out of the country. Oh, yeah, and Egypt wants it back, and they want the Rosetta Stone back, too. And I think Greece probably wants the the Elgin marbles back. I think they do, yes. (laughs) So what about this project did you find easiest and what was most difficult? I don't know that I found it easy. There were times that I amused myself. I had a lot of physical setbacks during those three years, um, a round of cancer and I'm fine, and hip surgery gone bad, 
which I've now had five surgeries and I'm going to have another one oh, in a couple of weeks. So that was a lot of going to physical therapy and doctors and being depressed and, of course, thinking about Barbara every day and wishing yeah. she were there for me to complain to or listen to me or let me listen to her. It was it was emotionally it was pretty tough. Mm-hmm. And I do indeed still think about her every day. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really sorry to hear that you went through all that. Um, as a, a reader of her books, I'm very grateful that you finished the project, but I can imagine. I mean, I I think of my writer friends. I I would find it very difficult to finish one of their books, even if I had a considerable, you know, because I'm not them, um, simply. Well, it certainly can be challenging to write comedy when you're not in a very good mood. That, too, yes. And there has to be some comic relief in all my books. I mean, even Amelia is capable of a joke. Well, there's a lot of comedy. There's a lot of very high comedy in those books. I mean, as I said, the, the Ryder Haggard stuff is, is there in the language, and there's all kinds of... of uh, I mean, they're wonderful character studies, those books. Mm-hmm. And I usually throw in something that almost nobody else ever catches, except me, and I think it's uproarious. And then... <laughs> That's great. So you mentioned that you're going to do another Arlie Hanks novel. Um, yep. Have you decided, I mean, other than letting Arlie have her baby, have you, <laughs> do you have ideas about where it's going to go or that you could possibly share with us, or do you always keep things under wraps until the end? Well, I think we're going to have a wedding because Arlie can get married because she's madly in love with this guy. So it might be the marital blues in Maggoty, but I'm thinking about really picking on the wedding itself, the wedding plans, wedding planners, and Arlie's friends from New York coming down for the wedding. That none of this makes her happy. Sounds like you've got and lots of material there. I think so. I just don't don't really want to start it because I'm going out of town this weekend and then I'm in surgery next week and then I'm sure I will get slapped in rehab for a couple of weeks to learn to walk again and I can't work in that situation I hope to get it started we wish you all the best and I especially with the surgery I hope it all goes well thank you so much for agreeing to spend your time with us today uh, especially under the circumstances well thank you Carol and the circumstances are fine and I'm so thrilled that the the Painted Queen is doing well. I think the best compliment I got was from my agent. He said he could not he could not see the transition. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, that's great. And pretty much everybody has said that, that it's, you don't know what Barbara wrote and what I wrote. No, that's true. I couldn't distinguish them either. I actually didn't know. I mean, there was no clear dividing line. I, I couldn't have said, well, she did it up to here, and then uh, you took mm-hmm. over. Mm-hmm. That was the most important thing to me. Yes. Well, you succeeded, so thank you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Well, thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Joan Hess about The Painted Queen. 
She doesn't maintain a separate website, but you can find out more about her by going to www.harpercollins.com and searching for Joan Hess or from her Wikipedia entry. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.